This morning, as we uh, continue in our series on Job, there's sort of two big things that I'm doing this morning. At, at the beginning of the message, I want to give you a very simple way of looking at the whole book, because we can't go through all the chapters and every verse by any stretch of the imagination. But I want to give you a, a bit of a structure so that when you're reading Job, uh, it helps you understand it. And so the first thing is to simply understand it, quite obviously, it's a bit like a three-act play. The first couple of chapters, God pulls back the curtain. He shows us what's going on behind the scenes that leads into Job's suffering. The second act, God and Satan retreat from the stage, so to speak, and we have this large section of roughly 28, uh, 29 or so um, chapters that take the form of a trial, And so when you're reading this, you have to understand that it is about being a trial. And then in Act 3, God shows up on the scene again and draws everything to a close. So it's kind of a three-act play, and and we're in the second act now. And um, it's a a trial. And and we see that it's a trial because in the first act, or the setup of the play or of of the story, is that Satan is an accuser. He's referred to as the adversary in Job 1. It's a word that carries the connotation of accusation. And we read in Revelation 12.10 that the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So Satan is an accuser. He's an adversary. He wants to bring accusation against God, and he wants to bring accusation against Job. And he says, does God, does Job fear God for nothing? In other words, his accusation of God is that you bribe Job. Job doesn't really love you. You're not actually loved. You're simply bribing people to give you glory. And he accuses Job of not loving God, but just loving God's stuff. And he says, if I take all of God's stuff away from Job, Job will not really love him because he doesn't actually love God. He just loves the stuff God gives him. So Satan's an accuser. And in the second act, as it begins to unfold in 3 to 31, uh, it literally then becomes a trial. Job's on trial, and he has to defend himself against accusations. And that's what's playing out in these long verses in the middle. And in ancient times, trials between people took on two main forms. And as you might expect, the two forms that trials took uh, look a lot like what happens in your own families with your brothers and your sisters or between any two people. So the first format of the trial is that two opponents would argue until one of them fell silent. You argue until your opponent uh, has no reply. You get the last word in. If they can't come up with an answer, you win. You ever done that with your brothers and sisters, right? You just keep arguing and arguing and arguing until one of them, you, the other one just finally shuts up. And, and you win because you, you've argued them into silence. That was literally how trials were conducted. You made your arguments until the person had no answer. The second way, which probably also happened in your family, is trial by combat. You, you, literally, you literally wrestled with the person that you had disagreement with. You grabbed a hold of each other's belts and you wrestled until one of you had given up. And uh, I know that in your families you've seen both of these things happen. And, and this is how Job's trials will unfold. Now mainly, of course, it's the first kind of trial. Job argues his friends into silence, but there's actually a, a fair bit of wrestling language that's used as well, especially in Job concerning his trial of God, so to speak, and we'll get to that next week. Um, but in the first trial, though, uh, which is friends versus Job, we see that Job is the agent of God. He's God's champion. He doesn't realize it. He doesn't know that he's God's champion, but he is God's champion. And in a similar way, the three friends become the unwitting agents of Satan, the accuser. 
because it is the accuser, it is Satan, the adversary, that brings accusation on God's people. And these three friends, so-called of Job, take the role of, so to speak, the accuser, and they continue to accuse. God and Satan retreat from the scene. Neither of them speak in these chapters, yet we see that the accuser is still at work, still attacking Job. And so we see the fingerprints of Satan in their words. They're full of half-truths and you know, actual truth misapplied, and they attack their countrymen with accusations that harm Job and harm God at the same time. And Satan has both Job and God on trial. And so this week we're going to consider Job's trial and what's going on. And specifically, now this is, so that just gave you a framework of how to read Job. Now what I want to do is I want to take that big chunk of chapters in the middle and I want to talk about, because we've talked about this a few times and we've heard it said many times, that, that, that Job's friends are wrong, that they make a whole bunch of statements that are wrong. Uh, like John Calvin said when he was teaching through this, he said, Job argues a good case poorly, and Job's friends argue a poor case well. But how specifically are they wrong? And that's what I want to look at today, because I think it's valuable to us if we look into the errors that, that lie behind Elihu and Bildad and Zophar's accusations and how those errors are defeated by Scripture and by a true knowledge of God. If, if we actually look into what the actual errors are, and they're in there, buried in all those 31 chapters, if we actually get in there and look, we will be able to better understand and equip and discern something even better than right from wrong. And I mentioned this in the first sermon. Lots of people can discern right from wrong. The true nature of discernment is when you can discern right from almost right. That's when you really know you've got the gift of discernment. When you hear something and you say, there's a lot of truth in that. I see what you're trying to say, but you haven't got quite it right. And the real danger in the church, the real danger of Satan, the real danger in North American culture is not right from wrong. Everybody sees that. It's right from almost right. And that's where you run into problems in the things that you read, the people you listen to on TV, the things your friends say. They may sound right, but they're only almost right. So let's look at the trial of Job then. Let's get into it here. And um, Satan, in the calamity that he has caused in Job's life and in the dialogue of the three friends, he's maneuvered Job between uh, a rock and a hard place, both physically and metaphysically. On the first hand, Job is stuck between the accusations of his friends and the silence of God. And he's kind of stuck. His friends are making these accusations, and God is not speaking to him. And he's kind of stuck between two hard places there. And then secondarily, metaphysically, or in his spirit, Job is stuck between refusing to reproach God for destroying all that he had been given, and also at the same time, on the other hand, not being willing to accept the charge that his suffering was the result of sin. So Job won't blame God outrightly, nor will he accept the accusations of his friends. And he's, and he's sort of stuck there in the middle. He's trapped there. And with Job trapped that way, Satan now, the accuser, through his unwitting agents, keeps turning up the heat. He keeps putting on the pressure in what we will see becomes three cycles of speeches of these friends of Job. And Job answering after each friend speaks. And it looks like this, if you want to see a quick outline, because of course we can't go through it all, that you see the three cycles on this PowerPoint slide. It just lays out the, um, I think it's the next slide, yeah, there it is. So there's those cycles and those, cycle one is those chapters, cycle two is those chapters, and cycle three is those chapters. And a friend speak Job's answers, a friend speak Job answers, and it goes on and on like that. It's, it's a trial. And so we need to look at what happens here during this trial in Friends v. Job. 
So the first prosecutor is Eliphaz. And in the first few sentences of chapter 4, Eliphaz kind of butters up Job a little bit, telling him that he has been wise and helpful to other people and that, you know, he's a good man, but now he needs advice. And Eliphaz starts out with a not-so-subtle observation. He says in 4, 7 to 8, Consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. Okay, so Eliphaz says that Job could very well be suffering because he sinned. He sowed trouble, and now he's reaping trouble. And he even makes a comment later on in chapter 5 that even the children of foolish sinners are far from safety, and they are crushed in the gate. Wow, Eliphaz. What a thing to say to a guy who just lost ten children, right? Foolish, wicked people, even their children aren't safe because they get crushed. So, But his point here that Eliphaz is making is Job... Sowing and reaping, you are reaping what you've sowed. And there's a kernel of truth there. There may be some truth. And Eliphaz even holds out hope to Job in chapter 5. He he tempers the reason he thinks Job might be suffering. He says in verses 17 and 18, he says, Blessed is the man whom God corrects, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. And so he's saying there's good purpose even in God's suffering. So Job has sinned. But that's okay because God's causing Job to suffer so that he will come back into the arms of God, so to speak. He's saying that it's a wake-up call for Job. It's an alarm to help him come to grips with the reality of his sin. Now that sounds pretty good. That sounds like something you would hear a preacher preach. It sounds like something biblical. There is a law of sowing and reaping. And God certainly can use suffering as means of correction. We could look at Galatians 6, 7 in terms of sowing and reaping and God not being mocked. Or we could look at Hebrews 12, 6 in terms of God disciplining those that he cherishes. And so Eliphaz would have some scripture on his side. But the problem with this blanket assessment that Eliphaz has made of how God performs justice in this life is that, well, to start with, Jesus disagrees with it. It's not always like that. You can't just learn one thing in the Bible and then just blanket everybody with it. In Luke 13 and 4, Jesus pulls a story from the headlines of the local Jerusalem newspaper. 18 workers die in collapse of Tower of Siloam. You might remember this in Luke. So tower is being built, it collapses, 18 workers die. And Jesus explains to his disciples that these workers who received the ultimate punishment, the ultimate penalty of death, didn't die because they were the most wicked people in Jerusalem. It wasn't because of their wickedness that they died. That had nothing to do with it. They just died. And you may die soon too. And so you should quickly come to relationship with God. That was the point. So Jesus says, you can't always look at suffering and decide that it has something to do with a person's sin. There are consequences to our actions. We often do reap what we sow, yes, but Eliphaz was not correct in applying that truth to Job. That was not the reason for Job's suffering. And so we have to be careful when dealing with God's word and with people that we don't just blindly grab one nugget of truth that we find in Scripture and apply it everywhere we look. 2 Timothy 2.15 says that we must be able to correctly handle the word of God. If you just grab one nugget of truth and try and apply it, it's, it's as the saying goes, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? And so if you believe, as Eliphaz does, that he had God figured out, if you sin, you get punished. Now that I have this great wisdom, I'm going to go around and find people who are suffering and accuse them of sin. 
because I've figured out the solution. No, we can't do that. We have to be discerning in how we apply the truth and especially how we rebuke a Christian. So now let's look at Eliphaz's advice to Job. He says in Job 5, he says, If it were I, I would appeal to God. I would lay my case before him. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that can't be counted. And then he goes on to identify the mercies of God and all the blessings that will come to Job if he's righteous. And uh, in verses 19 to 27, he's delivered from trouble. Your household will be at peace. You will laugh at famine. You'll have lots of kids. You'll live long and healthy. Here's Eliphaz saying you should repent of your sin and God is going to bless you like you're going to have kids and money and great stuff. And so Eliphaz's counsel here to seek God and be restored again seems good. If someone is suffering, if someone is in turmoil, if someone actually has sinned, you would ask them to repent and to seek God. You would ask that you would you would encourage them to lay their case before God. It seems like good advice. But then as you continue to read, as we did there in Job, we saw that his assessment of that is if you do that, God will then open up the floodgates of heaven and you will have health and wealth and long life and a happy, peaceful home and you'll live a long time and it will be great for you. Now, I don't even have to go to Scripture to tell you that sounds wrong, right? That if we go to God and we just confess our sins and we make sure that we act the right way and speak the right way and behave the right way, then the secret will be opened up to us and we will have our best life now because God is just going to make us healthy and wealthy and wise. But you see, that's not how God works. God works by sovereign grace. He has mercy on whom he will have mercy. And he uses suffering for our good as much as he uses blessing. And so when you get to the root of Elihu's theology, he thinks God is a slot machine or a vending machine that you can manipulate. Do the right things and God will bless you. Do the wrong things and God will punish you. If you do the wrong things, he owes you punishment. If you do the right thing, God owes you blessing. His theology is fundamentally flawed. And then in cycle three, we see the big error of Elihu. By the time you get, by the time all three of them get to the third cycle, and we're going to skip the middle one, I think, but by the time they get to the third cycle, they're, they're pretty much frustrated with Job because he's answered them every single time. And the errors really start to become apparent in the third cycle. So we'll, we'll go to Elihu's, or sorry, Eliphaz's big error, uh, in cycle three. Um, he's get, he's just, he, at this point, he just outrises, outright accuses Job of starving the hungry, abusing widows and orphans, and using his power to acquire wealth. That's in chapter 22, 7 to 9. He basically says, you know, you abuse people, uh, you, you cheat people out of money, uh, you, you harm orphans, uh, you're just a nasty person. I and mean, there's no evidence for any of this, right? He's just making stuff up at this point. But uh, all semblance of, of any kind of partial truth of wisdom is gone. And so he speaks very rashly also about the very nature of God. We see in Job 22, the third cycle of, of uh, Eliphaz, he says, Can a man be of benefit to God? Can even a wise man benefit him? What pleasure would it give the Almighty if you were righteous? What would he gain if your ways were blameless? Is it for your piety that he rebukes you and brings charges against you? So understand, like, here's the error becomes obvious when you kind of pick it out from all the other dialogue that's going on. After encouraging Job to confess his sin and to act righteously to please God, a few chapters later now, um, Eliphaz is literally stating that God doesn't get any pleasure even from righteous people anyway. Like, what? Like, Eliphaz, like, what are you saying here? Of course God doesn't need us. 
In Acts 17, 24 to 25, Paul tells us the people of Athens that God doesn't live in temples we build and we don't have to serve him food with our hands. But we do know that God is delighted when we act wisely and obedient and purely. What is Eliphaz's error here? He's just outright discrediting the nature of God. I mean, look at what Scripture teaches about the nature of God in contradiction to this. In Exodus 19.5, it says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession all, all, through, all, all through the whole earth, although the whole earth is mine. In 1 Samuel, he says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Samuel says the Lord doesn't delight in sacrifice. He delights in your obedience. Proverbs 11.20 says the Lord detests men of perverse heart, but he delights in those whose ways are blameless. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, Paul's speaking to the Christians there. He says, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. God delights in us. And here, Eliphaz is saying, does God even take delight in righteous people? Does it even matter if you're blameless, Job? He doesn't, he's not happy with you either way. You see how the error, it's hard to see it sometimes when you're reading through the Old Testament and all that kind of Old Testament language in there. But Eliphaz is just outright denying the character of God, that God doesn't even delight in his righteous and obedient people. Well, there's a second prosecutor, Bildad. Bildad's accusation against Job uh, sounds similar to Eliphaz's. But where Eliphaz was gentle and kind of indirect and kind of buttered Job up a little bit before he started, Bildad is impatient and very insensitive. And here's his opening lines in Job chapter 8. How long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. So he basically says to Job, you're a blowhard and your kids got what they deserved when they were killed. Wow. Okay, nice opening line. If you are speaking with a friend who's going through trial, um, here's what not to do, okay? That's the first application of this text. Don't open up with, you and your kids are getting what they deserve. Um, that's not good. Then he goes on in, in chapter 8, and he, and he says essentially the same thing as Eliphaz, although slightly different. He says, Surely God does not reject a blameless man or strengthen the hand of evildoers. Yet he will fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouts of joy. Your enemies will be clothed in shame and the tents of the wicked will be no more. So, again, it sounds good. God does not reject a blameless man or strengthen the hand of evildoers. That sounds, sounds like some part of that has to be at least right, that God doesn't reject blame, blameless people. It is true that God won't reject a blameless man. And we will see that God won't ultimately reject Job. But God's acceptance or rejection doesn't always materialize in this physical world. Bildad claims to be speaking from history, he says in verses 8 to 10. He says, you know from history, you know from our forefathers, you should learn from the people that have come before us. But we know from history that God sometimes does strengthen the hands of evildoers to accomplish his purposes. For instance, we could go to 2 Kings 18. God strengthened Assyria and Babylon to bring purification and judgment to Israel. And because those two nations were wicked, he then strengthened Israel to judge Assyria and Babylon, Jeremiah 25 explains. The tents of the wicked are not always destroyed, like Bildad says. Sometimes wicked people live their whole life in prosperity. And this can be really confusing. 
Psalm 73 says, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd almost lost my grounding. I'd nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They had no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens of common man, and they are not plagued by human ills. And he goes on, the psalmist goes on to talk about how prosperous the wicked are. But then at the end of the Psalm 73, he sees, he says, when I tried to understand this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. It says, until I went to church, until I went to the word of God, until I entered into the presence of God, and then I understood their final destiny, surely you place them on slippery ground and you cast them down to ruin. So again, what's right and what's almost right? Bildad is half right, saying that when we are declared blameless before God, we will not be rejected. But Bildad is not right in saying that that means that the hand of the wicked will never be strengthened against us, or that we will never see the wicked prosper, or that the righteous will not sometimes suffer. You have to know the whole counsel of God. You can't just know parts of it, or you won't be able to discern what is true. And then Bildad has an outright error, which is similar to Eliphaz's as well. He says in Job 25, again, the third cycle, they're they're all very frustrated with Job at this point. Now they're just making accusation against him and, you know, the the nature of God as well. He says in Job 25, 5 to 6, If even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in God's eyes, how much less is man who is but a maggot, a son of man who is only a worm? So here, Eliphaz was doubting that God delights in righteousness. Bildad is doubting that God even delights in his creation. Right? He doubts that God even takes delight in just the physical reality of his creation. He's saying he doesn't even think that God finds the moon and the stars pure and delightful. So, of course, there can absolutely be no delight in man who is a maggot. Well, the error of Job's friends become more and more apparent here. They're getting desperate, and they've just lost all sight of the nature of God. Let's actually see now, if we want to look at this half-truth, or this outright error in this point what God actually thinks of mankind and his creation from God's actual word. Genesis says that man was blessed from the beginning. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. God blessed them. Psalm 149 says, For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with salvation. Psalm 8 says, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Zephaniah 3.17, this is a great one. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Or in the New Testament, Romans 2.29 says, that with regard to those who follow God, his praise is not from man, but from God. And 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says that when the Lord comes and reveals what is hidden, then each one will receive his commendation from God. Okay, so Bildad, you're saying God doesn't even take delight in the sun and the moons. He certainly doesn't take delight in man. What does God's word actually say? He blesses us. He made us in his image. He loves us. He will sing over us. He will commend us. He will praise us. He's made us his own. That's the truth. And then there's a third prosecutor, Zophar. Zophar makes an accusation as well. This is Job 11. He says, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, a man full, uh, full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men when you mock, shall no one save you? And the word babble there is, more literally means literally lies or deception. Basically, you're just spinning a yarn. You know, so this yarn that you're spinning, 
And when you're mocking, should no one shame you? So he, he basically accuses Job of being a liar about all of this stuff. And then he misapplies truth again. And Job 11, Zophar speaking now, says, But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know that when God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. So he says, God is wise, and I wish that he would open his mouth and speak, Job. You're getting punished. You're not getting punished enough. Your guilt deserves more punishment. It's true. All of our guilt deserves more punishment. Zophar is not completely wrong. He's half true. Of course, we all suffer less in this life than what we deserve. The penalty of sin against a perfect and eternal God to be balanced has to be a complete and eternal punishment in its nature. And so Zophar is right. There is more suffering deserved if we're going to pay for our own sins. But he's wrong, as all three of them have been wrong. In fact, very bluntly, is that Job is not suffering because of sin. He's righteous. He's blameless. God himself has said that Job is blameless in this case. And so all of their accusations are false because Job isn't suffering because of his sin. And so the suffering he's experiencing is not too much for his sin. Or it is too much for his sin, sorry. His his suffering is too much for his sin because he's not sinned in God's eyes in this case. Now the irony here is Zophar wishes that God would speak and share his wisdom. (laughs) Zophar, it's funny. He says, oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. Well, I just love irony. God is going to speak and share his wisdom. And Zophar foolishly thinks that God's wisdom is going to align with his. And don't we often do that? Don't we quite often think that what we think is right and that therefore God must agree with us? God's always on our side. And then we take that into the scripture and we think we're right. And so now I'm going to go to God's word and see whether God agrees with me. And what do you know? I found some verses that do. But we have to be careful when we ask God to speak up in our defense. God is going to speak shortly. And Zophar is not going to be happy with God's words. And in case you were in any doubt at all at this point, whether the friends really were wrong in their assessment of Job and they were really wrong in their assessment of God, he says in Job 42, The Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you, and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. So you got your wish so far. God did speak. He said, you're an idiot. You're wrong. Go take seven bulls and rams and whatever and go to my servant Job and sacrifice and ask him to pray for you and I will listen to his prayer because you guys are wrong, all of you. They are acting as the accuser's unwitting assistance. They are accusing and accusing and accusing. But Job is blameless and correctly defends the righteous every time they accuse him. And in the third cycle, Zophar goes silent. There is no third cycle for Zophar. So all three friends speak, all three friends speak, two friends speak, and then Zophar has nothing more to say. You know what that means in trial? Job wins. He's argued them to silence. There's no more accusation that they can bring. Satan is an accuser. He will accuse. He will constantly bring 
half-truths and false witness against the true people of God. He will gladly stand by and let us mishandle and abuse Scripture to accuse each other as well. So when you're reading Job, it is such a great lesson for us, those dialogues. It may seem long. It may seem difficult to understand the poetry and the imagery. But if you dig into Job in those middle chapters, just as we have here, just a few things, and you can actually begin to discern, is what Eliphaz saying true? Is what Zophar saying true? Is what Bildad saying true? What does what they say compare to the word of God? Do I know the word of God well enough to be able to tell that what they're saying is wrong? Would I be able, reading what Bildad had said, to be able to go to those scriptures in Psalms and to say, wait a minute, Bildad, you're saying God doesn't delight in man? I know I've read somewhere that God delights in man. As a people, we have to be equipped to discern false arguments. We need to be able to see the schemes of the accuser because he will stand by and let us receive bad wisdom and bad advice all day long. He will gladly let you read something in a book or see something on TV or let a friend try and convince you in your friend group that what you're doing is the right thing. And if you are not saturated in the Word of God, if you're not a word-saturated people, if we don't understand the true nature of God, we can easily be knocked off course. Job never gave an inch. He argued and he argued and he argued. He said, I will never give in on this. He says, as surely as God lives, who has denied me justice? The almighty who has made me taste bitterness of soul. As long as I have life within me, the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness. My tongue will not utter no deceit. I will never admit you are in the right till I die. I will not deny my integrity. I will maintain my righteousness and never let go of it. My conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. Can you say that? Can you say that in the things that are going on in your life? That you know the true nature of God. You know his love for you. You know that even though you're suffering, even though trials are hard, you will not bring reproach upon God. You will not act in a way different than what his word prescribes because you know that his word and his nature are for your good. Job knew it. Ten kids dead, flocks wiped out, houses destroyed, some kind of scabby thing that he had to scrape off his skin with a pottery shard. He said, I will not give in to these accusations. They're from the enemy. It's not God who accuses us. God is not the accuser. Satan is the accuser. If you're feeling accused, that's Satan. God is not the accuser. I have time, so I'm just going to back up slightly here. It's in your homework as well. But if you look at Zechariah 3, 1 to 4, we're going to look at it real quickly. I don't think I have PowerPoint for it, but maybe I do. Zechariah 3, 1 to 4. God pulls back the curtain on this whole accuser thing again through another prophet, Zechariah. He says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Remember, Satan's the accuser. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. 
And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Okay, so here's a second time that God has lifted the curtain through a prophet and said, this is what's going on behind the scenes. Joshua, the high priest, the most pure person in Israel, right, the only one that could go into the Holy of Holies on one day a year, he was standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan was standing there accusing him. Satan's the accuser, always the accuser. Not God. But the Lord, who had chosen Jerusalem, that's God, spoke and said, I rebuke you, Satan. This one, this, this one Joshua that you're trying to accuse, he's like a brand plucked out of the fire. I have snatched him out. And then they said, take off these filthy rags. Now why does he say that? This is the high priest. Because, as we said, Zophar was partly right. We're all filthy. We all deserve sin, punishment. We've all sinned to deserve punishment. Even the high priest of Israel was clothed as in filthy garments. But God says, take those clothes away from him. Take off those filthy garments and put on white robes. He says, I've taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. You see, Satan is always the accuser. God is always the redeemer. Always the redeemer. So if you're hearing accusation in your life, that's the accuser. If you want to silence the accuser, you run to God. And he will rebuke Satan for you. Okay, how can we summarize this? There's definitely some specific lessons here for us about the errors of the three friends, right? We could go through each of these errors as we just did, and we learn something true about the nature of God. He delights in us. He doesn't despise us. He delights in his creation. He loves us. He sings over us, right? We are worthy of punishment, but that we are redeemed and that he takes away our punishment. There's a lesson here also, if we were to read this, about how not to approach people in suffering. You could go through this and just take it as a list of, here's how not to rebuke people. Trust me, people get no help from friends like these, right? Miserable comforters are you all, says Job, right? If you can't handle the word of God rightly, if you can't rightly divide the word of truth, then you are not helpful to people. And and if you come with a spirit of hurtfulness and you come with a spirit of rebuke and condemnation instead of gentleness and respect, then you are not helping. So there's a lesson there for us in that. There's a lesson in the errors. There's a lesson in how we should approach people who are suffering and struggling, a lesson in how to be good comforters. And there's a larger lesson here, an overarching lesson of all of these as well, that Satan is our adversary. He's our accuser. He is the accuser of God. And we have to guard ourselves carefully against putting God on trial for things that are based on Satan's accusations. And, and Job does, in a sense, put God on trial. Right? We're going to get to that next week. Job, Job refuses to give in on his righteousness and his faithfulness to God, and that's good. But, but in a sense, Job does put God on trial. And we have to be careful that we don't put God on trial or doubt the nature of God because of the things that Satan is saying. Because Satan will try to mislead us. There's lots of things that God will gladly stand trial for. God is happy to own up to all the stuff that's his responsibility, and he's sovereign, and he doesn't have a problem for that. He doesn't deflect any responsibility that is sovereignly his own. But God will not be slandered. He will not have his glory diminished. In the end, God always speaks, and he will be right, and we will be silenced. 
we will cover our mouths. And so there's all these lessons in here for us to learn. But the big one that we want to see here is that Satan is the accuser. He's our adversary. We have to guard ourselves by being saturated in the word to be able to discern true from half true, right from almost right. Otherwise, he will gladly try to derail our faith. But the answers are here in Scripture. To the arguments of these three friends, the arguments of your friends, the arguments of whatever Christopher Hitchens says or anybody else says, the answers are here. But you've got to know them. Be Bible-saturated people so that you know those Scriptures that tell you the truth. Let's pray. Father God... We thank you for your word. We thank you for Job. Thank you for the lesson of this trial. Job on trial. We know from his own words that he wasn't happy going through it. But we are grateful that he did. You are not wasting one moment of Job's suffering because Job's suffering and his trial is a comfort to millions and millions and millions who have come after him. And you will not waste one second of our suffering either. You will use every aspect of our pain for your glory, for your edification, for the building up of your people, for the transformation of lives, for the glory of your kingdom. You will use everything to your good. And we thank you for that. Lord, I just pray that we would be Bible-saturated people that no fiery dart of the evil one could ever throw us off course, could ever pierce us that we would be able to hear a half-truth and say, no, not today. I know what God's word really says. I know where I stand. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.